0: Irish Nation, it is chaos in South Bend and not in a good way. The Irish, once again, inexplicably lose as three-score favorites, falling to the Stanford Cardinal, who, as we emphasized in last week's show, has not beaten an FBS team in over a year. And about as confident as I think we've been going into a game um, th- th- this year, and, and maybe shame on us, but Mike, a really disappointing outcome in South Bend. Notre Dame falls to three and three on the season. And frankly, this might be our toughest show of the young Geyer's talk podcast, uh, career here in season two. Definitely. This game was one of the hardest Notre Dame games that I've watched
1: as a fan. I don't think there's any getting around that. It was, it was brutal, especially the first half. Uh, and Brett, as you said, it seemed like we were past this. So what we're going to do this show. Is we're, we're gonna, we try to be glass half full, but I think it's gonna be a little challenging to seem optimistic after this game. But we are gonna try to keep our takeaways confined to this game. We don't wanna overreact based on one data point. We don't wanna come up with a bunch of existential themes, a bunch of high level takeaways that could potentially be disproven in a couple weeks if we start looking good again. Now again, this was a pretty bad data point, so I don't think we're going to sound too optimistic when we're, we're giving our, 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 our thoughts on this game, but uh, we're going to try to take a rational approach. And I think down the line a little later in the season, hopefully maybe in a few weeks, we can, we're going to try to take more of a step back then and talk about what we think of the Freeman era, what we think about the, the status of the program and what are reasonable expectations going forward. I think it's very easy to just overreact to one game and we're going to try to avoid doing that here as much as we can. And Frankly, this isn't just one game. We've had a couple data points like this already. So that that is like a fair counterpoint there. But I I think we're going to try to take a pretty rational approach here. In terms of other aspects of the show today, one area we're going to focus on, we mentioned that we try to stay positive. We're going to do a segment on the defense. That's one area that's been getting a lot of flack, actually, since the Stanford game for underperformance. Brett and I, we actually have the opinion that the defense has been playing fine. And in fact, pretty well at times. We think they're being a bit unfairly lumped in with other issues with the team. So we're going to do a dive there. We think there's some positive takeaways there that we can, we can, uh, talk about a bit. And then wedged in between that, we're also going to give a little quick preview of the UNLV game. UNLV should be a pretty, should be a pretty quick, uh, summary of their team. We're pretty big favorites. So in theory, it should be an easy game for Notre Dame. We've said that several times this year already. So who knows? But, but, uh, but so we're we're gonna cover that one pretty quick. And obviously the theme for this this uh show is gonna be takeaways from the Stanford game and and as I mentioned,
0: the segment on on the defense. Before we dive in, couple housekeeping items. Huge. Um pre congratulations to Mike. He's at time of recording six days, five days from from walking down the aisle. Um, Getting close. Get, get, getting married to Kristen, so very excited for that. Ann and I are flying up here in a couple days to, to Minnesota to, to be there to celebrate with y'all, and as a result, uh, Mike's getting married. He's buying a new house. He's going on a two-week honeymoon, so we're going to be without his podcast services here for a few weeks. We are in the works of lining up um, some friends of the show who are waiting in the wings as uh, backup co-hosts, the uh, Drew Pines, if you will of Geyers Talk. Hopefully they perform a little bit better than Drew Pine did this week. But we're we're excited to get some other guys on the show um and, and cover for Mike for while he's out. But just ask our listeners, we might get a little off on our cadence, um, but we'll we'll try to stick to the Monday Tuesday release of the show. But but bear with us if as as we get off schedule here a little bit with a new production crew in Mike's absence. With that, uh let's dive into this game that was the 14-16 loss to Stanford.
2: Let's do it. You know, we have to execute better. and Offensively, we have to execute better. Defensively, we can't give them the touchdown on the very first drive. You know, and, and this is why it's a team game. You know, when there's days when your offense isn't executed with a defense, we've got to play better. we got to play perfect.
0: Mike, as, as you said in the intro, we're going to try to keep as much of this focused specifically to the Stanford game. It's a little hard, though, not – to step back and stare at a 3-3 and season and start thinking bigger picture about how do we assess Marcus Freeman's first year. And so my number one reaction to this game is this one is on Freeman. Set aside Reese, set aside Drew Pine, missing throws, set aside, I don't know, I've seen complaints on bad officiating, like set aside every other excuse. This one more than the rest is on Freeman. And I've heard a lot of comparisons to the Brian Kelly start to his tenure going one and three and then things worked out. So maybe that'll be the same for Freeman. But Brian Kelly took over for a true rebuild following the Charlie Weiss years that truly left the quote unquote cupboards bare. Freeman has taken over for a team that's won over 50 games in the last five seasons. One of only a handful of programs that can do that or say that along with two college football playoff appearances, a fiesta bowl appearance and a number 10 ranking in the 24-7 talent composite, meaning he has the 10th most talented team. And there's just not excuses for this. And so I'm optimistic he's a young coach. I'm optimistic he can grow and learn from this. But Mike, what's your initial reaction just on Freeman as a whole and, and how you're feeling about where he's taking this right now?
1: Yeah, you're right. So as I mentioned, it's one game, but it's really hard not to think of some of the the takeaways that, that come from this game. So I was just sitting back after this game, and I was trying to think of really any example of a new coach taking over what would be seemingly a healthy program. And Brett, you also had a counterpoint. Typically, there aren't many new coaches coming into healthy programs. Typically, those jobs don't pop up very often. So I think that's a fair point. There really aren't that many data points. But that aside, I couldn't really think any examples of coaches going into a good, what you'd call a good situation and then dropping two eye popping losses in short succession. And then after that, rebounding and eventually being a very successful coach. It's just, I, it just doesn't seem like that happens very often. Now, I do think one difference here though is Marcus Freeman is a brand new head coach. He doesn't have any new head coaching experience. So, if there were someone who would be able to improve quite a bit, it would be someone like Marcus Freeman. You think each week hopefully he's picking up different things. He's getting a, di- a pulse on the team. He's making putting his stamp on the team. So, you think hopefully there's a little bit more upside there than you would you would think in some of these other situations. But that aside, it's still not, it's still not a good feeling. These two losses we had against Stanford and then previously against Marshall. Those are two of the worst losses that we've had in the last 10 years. 12 years, honestly. So th- there's no getting around that. There have been some signs that the, the team has, it's interesting because th- at different times we've looked pretty good and the times we've looked really bad. So th- I think there is the potential for this team to perform well. We've just been madding, like maddingly inconsistent at times. And I think that that's another theme. So. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that, um, so I'm going to move, I'm going to shift here a little bit, uh, and, and get more into what Freeman was saying in the press conference. Cause I, I had some takeaways there too. And I know, I know you did as well, Brett, but in in the press conference, and it's easy to, I I think these press conferences are really tricky for, for coaches. If you're coming into a situation where you've been losing, people are just going to be picking at your every word. And I don't really know how much you actually get out of what they're saying, but I did think it was notable that Freeman was using the word execution many many times. It looks like Brett, you counted it, or maybe you saw a tweet where they counted it and said he said he used the word execution 27 times, and he wasn't using it as a joke like Brian Kelly did at halftime. Uh, he was he was talking about our performance, our, our players' performance. It's really kind of code. If you're talking about execution, you're not you're not really criticizing the play calling. You're essentially saying the play calling, the scheme that was a ok. What the issue was is once we actually ran the play, once we ran the scheme there was some mistake that was made, i.e. the players screwed up essentially. And so that's that's what he was hinting at here. It's a bit subtle. He's not outright calling out the players, but he kind of is, honestly. Um, so I, I thought that that was maybe not what I would like to see. I would kind of maybe like to see a little bit more of a, a look back in the mirror, a look back at our coaching staff and maybe comment on, oh, hey, you know what? Maybe our scheme isn't isn't uh isn't doing everything that it's supposed to be doing maybe we're not putting our players in the best position to succeed maybe our offensive play calling maybe we're not maybe we're not getting everything out of that that we could so I thought that was one that was one big takeaway that I had and I um I would say that's not quite what I would have that's definitely not what I would have liked to have heard uh after this game
0: I I completely agree Brian Kelly got crucified in the media whenever we'd lose a game and he'd say you know we didn't execute and that got quickly translated into coach speak for the players sucked. And the difference here is Freeman's pretty good about when he says the execution was bad and it's on the coaches to go back and look at the film and get it right and get the players prepped. So like he says it's an execution problem and the coaches need to fix it. But like saying execution 27 times in an interview, I think we might be up to saying that word 27 times in this segment. Um, it's coach speak for saying it's on the players. And look, there's no good way to explain being three and three. Like there's no good way to go into a job review when you know you've done a really bad job for the year and explain it in a good way. So I'm, I'm a little bit like trying to not overread into interview speak, but it does stand out that he's yet to offer a solution or an explanation for the why. In fact, at one point in the post-game press conference, he said it starts with film evaluation. We need to look in the mirror. We need to go back and watch every single play, figure out what went wrong, fix it. And then he was asked, like, well, what are you going to do to fix it? And he basically said, I don't know, but we'll find a way. Trust me. He doesn't have our trust. Like, just to be clear, I hope Brian Ke- uh, Marcus Freeman succeeds and has a great career at Notre Dame. But when you start 3-3, three and three, barely beating Cal with an inexplicable loss to Marshall and an inexplicable loss to just a really bad Stanford team. Um, Telling us he'll find a way, just trust me, I don't like that one. And the other part of this is, like, Reese is for sure on the hot seat. Reese is laying an egg about as big as Brian Van Gorder did in the 4-8 2016 season. So he's for sure on the hot seat. But there's this element to Freeman about his role in the offense that just continues to trouble me. Um, I'll just read it. He, he had a quote from the press conference that my role as a head coach is to give my opinion. And there's times I might say, hey, run the ball. Hey, run the ball. There's not many times I say stop running the ball and throw the ball. But there's times where I'm going to step in and say run the ball. We've talked about an offensive line that is not what we expected. We've talked about a wide receiving game that is not also working. And we've talked about the ability to just pound the ball up the middle being, like, relatively futile in this season. And I get nervous that we have a defensive-minded coach who is taking a defensive-minded approach to the offense. Um, Kirk Ferentz at Iowa is criticized for this all the time. Kirby Smart at Georgia, even when he was in the middle of a championship season, was getting... Criticized by Georgia fans for not being creative on offense. Like it's a very common thing for defensive coaches to get really conservative on offense. And I think we're seeing that. Like everyone kind of talked about is Brian Kelly holding back Tom Reese from being explosive and creative. I'm actually thinking like if Marcus Freeman saying the only input he provides is when he sees an opportunity to say we should be running it more. Is not what I'm looking for to try to create havoc, uh, sorry, to try to create explosiveness and chunk plays. Like if you can't generate chunk plays in college football and you're asking 19, 20 year old kids to go execute 10 plus play drives and march down a field in a slow, methodical way without any mistakes, without any false starts, without any holdings, without any drop passes, without any missed blocking assignments, it's hard to string together 12 plays in a row. And so you've got to figure out a way to get explosive, find chunk plays, find space, find creativity. And I'm not jazzed up by our coach, our head coach, talking to our offensive coordinator to saying, hey, we need to run the ball more, when our offense has been sputtering really for all but the last three quarters of Carolina and the first three quarters of BYU. There's a six-quarter stretch in this season where our offense has worked, and the rest of the season has not. I really wish the feedback was a little bit more than, I've got an opinion we should run more. I agree. Yeah, it's it's an interesting
1: perspective given, like you said, Brett, that everyone thought Kelly was holding Reese back. Based on this, it sounds like Freeman's actually potentially watering down what Tommy Reese would be doing otherwise. Brian Kelly, offensive-minded coach, he's actually, we didn't see quite as much at Notre Dame, but in the past, he's actually had some pretty explosive offenses when he's had the right pieces. I do think it's interesting. We, we mentioned this before in other shows, but Tommy's a very young coach. I do think he is a bright offensive mind, but he is inexperienced. And when you have that level of inexperience, just taking full ownership of an offense, it probably is really helpful having an experienced offensive minded head coach that can serve as that final check on, on the game plan, on plays, etc. So Tommy doesn't really have that anymore. And I think we're seeing a little bit of a struggle. Certainly there have been a few things that have not bounced his way. We lost our quarterback, the wide receiver room. We have no depth there. Basically the offensive line has been, has not been performing as well as we've expected. So you have all that going on, but I do think an element here is Tommy doesn't really have that equal or superior within the program that can really serve as a sounding board for him. And the only advice that he's really getting is just run the ball more. So I just think that, that that's an element there that's probably not very helpful for developing an explosive, productive offense. Um, but yeah, so I, I think those were I thought that those were all good all good points, Brett. And uh, I think now that we've kind of talked about some of these bigger picture takeaways from the Stanford game, uh, it probably makes sense now to dive a little bit more into the some of the advanced metrics that show in detail kind of how, how we got how we got beat. So I'll start with the headline. We always start with the headline post game win expectancy. That's this number basically you could think of it as just combining all the advanced metrics into one and essentially tells you if you were to play a game a hundred times, how many times, play this game a hundred times, how many times you would have won or lost basically, right? So that that's probably, that's a very simple explanation of it, but it, Basically, if you look at the percent that it gives you, it tells you if you actually got beat, if you actually should have won. In this case, Stanford had a 76% post-game win expectancy. So that tells us that Stanford did actually just flat-out beat us. So it wasn't... There were some. There were certainly some plays that didn't go our way. That fumble that got overturned, that was one. There were a number of fumbles that Stanford had that we did pick up. So there are a few things like that that you can point to. But overall, if you just look at all the numbers, you look at the game in aggregate, Stanford just straight-up beat us. And um, starting with some of the other headline advanced metrics that we, that we mentioned pretty frequently. So our success rate, we actually had a slight edge there. So we were at 40% versus 38% for Stanford. And uh, the explosive was pretty low for both. So 1.14 for us and 1.13 for Stanford. So neither, neither team was really generating a, a bunch of huge chunky plays on average. So overall pretty poor offensive performance on both sides. Obviously, Stanford's defense was well-known coming into this game to be very bad. So for for Notre Dame to struggle against a defense that bad, I think that says something. But where the difference—I would say where the difference really showed itself was in the havoc rate. So Stanford generated a lot of havoc against us, 25%. And then on the other hand, our defense—we mentioned this is a key to the game in last week's show. We were saying if our defensive line was struggling to get havoc— that would potentially signal trouble for this game. And that, that is actually something that happened. So we only generated a 7% havoc rate against Stanford. We, you generally want to be in the high teens. That's a good, a good percentage. Stanford at 25% against us. That's extremely high. So they were really disruptive and we weren't, uh, multiple batted passes also in the run game. There were some stops, uh, six tackles for a loss. So just overall our, our offense was allowing Stanford to create plays that were extremely disruptive. And when neither offense was doing well, that disruption was actually one of the keys of the game that allowed Stanford
0: to, to take over and beat us. For sure. And, you know, as we we look on the offensive side of the ball, the one other advanced stat I'd I'd add is line yards per rush was 2.4. You want that number to be in the threes. So it just really shows our offensive line just was not winning the line of scrimmage. Interestingly, on the other side, Stanford's line yards per rush was 2.1, so I think a lot of folks wanted to call out our defensive line in this game or our front seven for for not being there, not being disruptive. I mean, they weren't disruptive because Tanner McKee was running like one-and-a-half-second pass plays, like you just weren't going to get home on these quick passing throws. But in the run game, we were absolutely dominant. But sticking on our offense, I mean, you said it, a low success rate, low explosiveness, low line yards per rush, and a high Havoc rate a lot. It's just not going to work. <clears throat> and what stood out to me was actually the play calling on first down really stood out. And, and if you remove first down, you know, it's interesting. Only 25% of our runs were up the middle. That's one of the lowest rates on the season. We've been talking about that a lot where that number has been more in the 35-40% range and so we've been asking for misdirection, and look, I, I was wrong, and it's why I'm not getting paid millions of dollars to be our offensive coordinator. But we had a jet sweep um, get blown up on a fourth down, although I don't think fourth and two was the time to call the jet sweep. We had a reverse to Braden Lindsey to start a drive that went for an eight-yard loss. So even our misdirection wasn't working. Um, so shame on me for asking for more misdirection. I guess I'll stop calling that out every week. But what really stood out to me was our first down offense. We had 26 plays on first and 10. We had a 46% success rate, which means on 46% of those 26 plays, we got five yards or more. Again, on any down and distance situation, if your success rate's in the high 40s, you're doing good. So we were actually pretty darn good on first down success rate. But when you double click on that, within those 26 first down snaps, we passed the ball nine times and had a success rate of 67%. If you have a 67% success rate on any sample size, you are looking like Joe Burrow. So on first and 10 pass plays, for as bad as this game was, we were electric and moving the chains and staying ahead of schedule on first and 10 when we passed the ball. The other 17 times we ran the ball on first down with a success rate of 35%. I'm all for running the ball. I'm all for balanced offense. I do not understand how you can be watching a game, scheming a game, planning all week, watching all of this film that I'm told Reese and Freeman are allegedly watching and have a success rate twice as high when you pass the ball on first down, yet instead run the ball twice as often. Like you had a 67% success rate passing the ball and a 35% success rate running the ball and you continued to run the ball two-thirds of the time on first down. I don't get it. Like I'm, I'm not the offensive coordinator because if I was all I'd be doing is calling jet sweeps, bubble screens, play action and reverses and none of those except for the play action. None of those worked in this game. So clearly I am not the solution to be offensive coordinator, but I do not know how you can sit and stare at this team, watch this team and continue to run the ball in futile fashion on first and 10. I just don't get it.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with all those takes that you have there, Brett. It's interesting with the misdirection of the jet sweep. We're gonna talk about this play a little bit more, but I do think in this case, in Freeman's post game comments, or I, I can't remember his post game, or if it was if it was his comments t- today, but he basically said they realized that the play was a bad setup, but then it was too late for them to call a timeout and switch out of it. So they, I think, if they had a little bit more time, they they would have they would have change the play call and then and switch it up but unfortunately they didn't have enough time but I, I do think the themes that you mentioned here they're all they're all pretty glaringly obvious it just felt to me when i was watching the game that when we would run on first down we were just constantly getting behind on the chains it just seemed like it was making it really difficult for our offense to move the ball up field and it's interesting seeing these stats on the on the passing on the first down because it seems like as you said 67 percent that's a really good success rate you do that you're keeping your offense ahead of the chains you're going to keep moving the ball downfield you're putting yourself in a good position so again and you you can't necessarily throw the ball every single time but it's a common theme that we've mentioned week in week out and that's that the plays that are are really successful we're not saying run them every time we're just saying do more of them and keep doing it to the point to where it it stops being as successful as it has been we haven't reached the point of diminishing returns we haven't even gotten close frankly play action that's another thing that we talk about as well. Um, and it was, those were not successful this week as they have been in the past, but they were more successful than our non-play action plays. And I think on a, on a day where Drew Pine is just off, maybe you do some more of those to try to try to get some momentum going. And we didn't really do enough of them. So I, again, I agree with all your points here. I think one other theme that we want, we were talking about this spread, this is a point that we really wanted to bring up um, on the play calling, but this was uh about, We've talked about play action, misdirection, getting athletes more touches in space, all that. But one other theme that on the play calling that we haven't really talked about as much is just how our option play calls aren't actually options. So I'm going to go through one example here, Brett, and then I don't know if you you can cover the, the next one after that. But I'll start with the one play that's been getting a lot of attention. We already talked about it a bit previously. I mentioned we were gonna talk about it again. And so that's that fourth and two jet sweep by Jaden Thomas. So first question. (laughs) Jaden Thomas, uh obviously he's he's got a lot of athleticism, but I would say one of his big calling cards is that he's a big bodied physical receiver. I wouldn't say he's the receiver that you point to on our team as the really shift fasty uh shifty fast guy. So I was thinking why isn't someone like Tyree, Styles, Lindsey digs why i don't know why one of these guys wasn't getting it so those are immediately four other options that seem like they would have been better suited there maybe they wouldn't have been able to score on this play but i think their skill set is better equipped to maybe something make something out of nothing there now honing in on the start of the play here notre dame has one wide receiver and three tight ends thomas is the wide receiver with the three tight ends there are four blockers on the left and then there are four on the right thomas he starts in motion to the left So Stanford flipping to the other side of the ball. They have five defenders on the left and five on the right with one safety in the middle. When Thomas starts in motion, one defender follows him to the left and then the safety moves left. So a split second before the snap, immediately there's there's a shift and there are seven defenders on the left against four blockers. And then there are four defenders on the right against four blockers. So there's a big mismatch there. Clearly disadvantage us. So the correct read here would have been to fake the jet sweep and hand off to Estime on the right side. But we don't. Instead, we hand off the jet sweep um, and just double down on it. Uh, but the troubling part here is that the right side of the line never really actually blocked and estimate never actually ran. So the point here with that final detail is that this was never, this was never an option. It was just a jet sweep all the way. There was no ability to change it up, even if Pine saw something that he didn't like. So if we're going to run option concepts here, it needs to actually be an option. So that's not a player execution issue here. That's a, that's a, just a bad play call. And I mentioned before, that up in the booth Reese saw this happening in real time. He told Freeman about a couple seconds before we hiked the ball, like essentially, uh Oh, uh, I I don't like this look, but it was too late to call a timeout. And then we ran the play and we were screwed. But if you had an option here, if you truly had an option here and you had a quarterback that was able to read this, maybe you could have changed the play into something else. And your odds of success would have been, uh, a lot higher here.
0: Yeah. And the, the next example was really similar. Um, it was third and two in the second quarter. Uh, we didn't get the third two. We actually then went for it on fourth and one and estimate picked up the first down. So it wound up not being nearly as crucial of a play as as the jet sweep you just talked about. But it was the same concept. We started off the play with three wide receivers to the left. And very early when we were doing our scan read, their corner sneaked up and basically gave away that they were going to run a corner blitz. Like they, they gave away, they're supposed to disguise it. Their corner made a mistake and made it very clear their corner was covering uh, what was coming on a blitz. And when that happened, that left three wide receivers being defended by just two defenders. Every single time, if you have a run play called, that just has to be a bubble screen to the wide receiver. Like This is like Aaron Rodgers bubble screen 101, or Sean McVay bubble screen 101, that if the defense crashes down and you are left with more wide receivers than they have defenders, The two outside wide receivers in that trio should start blocking. The middle one should drop back one yard and catch the bubble screen and take off. And you effectively use the bubble screen like a run play. But just like the jet sweep that you just went through, Mike, there was never actually an option. Like when the blitzers came down, the wide receivers all took off running decoy routes. It was very, very clear that the play call wasn't, hey, if they crash down and you have advantage... The wide receivers need to adjust and go into a bubble screen, uh, motion. Instead, they just were running whatever the decoy route was on a run play. So it was clear that that was run all the way. And what I don't understand is the fact that we are running an RPO offense. Like these are RPO, you know, run pass option mechanics. That's why we have the motion jet sweep, whether we hand it off or not. That's why you see us, you know, kind of in shotgun formation and faking little handoffs and then stepping back and pass. But what stood out to us in this game that, I guess, shame on us for not noticing it before, we're not actually doing the option part of RPO. We're, we're leaving out the O. Oh, we're just doing run-pass and pre-picking one of the two. So I don't know if this is recent Freeman saying, I've got a backup quarterback and I'm trying to simplify things, but I don't buy that. Pine's been in the program for three years. Running option reads is just part of being a modern college football quarterback. It's part of being a modern college football offense. And on two really big plays, a third and two and a fourth and two in this game, we weren't running an option. Like, I, I just don't get it. And and I'd rather like it if we were actually running options and the players read it wrong. Then you can be talking to me about execution. Uh, it, I, it keeps bringing me back to the Deshaun Kaiser two-point conversion attempt in the hurricane game against Clemson, I think back in 2015 or sixteen where we ran an RPO and he just read it wrong and ran right into the defense instead of handing it off and we would have had a shot for the two-point conversion to win it. I can live with that. Like, I can live with a college player just making the wrong read. Here, we're not even asking him to make a read. We're just making a gamble and and hoping it works out. And if we added the simple, the very, very simple concept of letting these options actually be options, we would... Just be converting like like it's very easy to convert a bubble screen. It's very easy to hand the ball off to estimate instead of Jaden Thomas. These aren't hard concepts if they're read right, but we're not even asking him to read them. We're not even running the option. So this is just another example where it's very frustrating watching this offense and what they're trying to do on the field and just head scratching um, what's what's going on. Flipping briefly to the other side of the ball, we're going to break down the defense in more detail after we preview the UNLV game. So I'll be really quick here. Um, You said it earlier, 38% success rate, 1.13 explosiveness, and only 2.1 line yards for the Stanford Cardinal offense. Those are dominating numbers um, for our defense. The other one that I really love, they ran the ball 42 times for 97 yards and had just 2.3 yards per carry and not a single run longer than nine yards. So, yes, Tanner McKee threw the ball for 290 yards. Yes, he got his. Yes, they put up enough points to, to go win the game. But considering six of the 16 points came off of turnovers, and after the opening drive touchdown was allowed, Stanford just got three points that wasn't off of a turnover. Um, the defense, despite I think a lot of – I feel like whenever we lose a game – Fans and message boards and media personalities always say the tackling was poor. Our tackling, our missed tackling rate was actually um, 9% in this game. Um, it's been 10% on the season, and that's a um, top 10 that's actually ranked number 8 in the country. So this was actually a really good tackling game, despite what maybe folks want to just remember one or two plays that stand out. So across the board, Mike, I'm curious what your thoughts were, maybe on individual player performances. But overall, I thought the defense did their part, really locked down th- throughout the course of this game. Would have liked to have seen them generate a little bit more havoc, come up with a turnover, but I think they forced three or four p- fumbles and just weren't able to get one um, recovered. So by and large, I thought they did their part, um, could have done a little bit more, but a really solid performance on the defensive side of the ball. I agree.
1: Look, Stanford only scored 16 points, and our offense was putting our defense in. We weren't exactly putting them in great positions all game. They were on the field quite a bit. And, yeah, I think just if you look at big picture how they did, I thought they did fine. Of course, you can pick certain areas. So if our havoc rate was a little bit high, if our havoc rate was higher here, then that would have essentially been a perfect performance from our defense. And, um, obviously, that would have been encouraging to see. I was anticipating a little bit more havoc. We talked about how Stanford's offensive line, how they've been struggling all year and then coming into this game they also had some guys banged up too so it, it was a little surprising that we weren't able to to get that but look if you have a 30 if you're allowing a 38 percent success rate 1.13 explosiveness the other team's not going to be able to put up many points even with a really low havoc rate so i think i think the defense was solid they're definitely not why we lost this game certainly there are areas for them to improve um I think just even looking at how we – you mentioned the tackling, how we grade out there, but even just looking uh, at a higher level in terms of uh, how our players grade out. We had six players grade out, 70 or higher. If you have a score that's 70 or higher, that's an above-average starter grade, so that's a good performance. And then seven more graded out is 64 or higher, so that's about average. So if you look at how our defense graded out from a pro football focus grade standpoint, it was a pretty good performance. It's certainly not a performance that you could attribute – as a reason for losing a game like this. So overall, Brett, I think I agree with everything you said. I'm not, I'm not putting this one on the defense at all. Would it have been nice for them to have that banner perfect performance that we've been waiting for them to have? Of course, that probably would have been enough for us to win, but I don't think that they, I don't think that they deserve to get lumped into the struggles that we're seeing from other parts of the team.
0: Yeah. And I'll maybe just close out the Stanford segment by just acknowledging this feels like some of the worst football we've seen in recent memory, even the 2016 season where we were four and eight, we were still top 25 in SP plus, And we've fallen all the way to number 43 this year. And what that really means is when we went four and eight on a play by play basis, we were a pretty darn good football team and just had a lot of bad bounces. Um, You know, bad injury luck, bad turnover luck, bad, you know, just close games. Couldn't close out here. Like, this wasn't bad luck against Stanford. They beat us. Like a bad team beat us. And that's now same with Marshall where a bad team beat us and we barely beat a bad Cal team. Like we're just playing like a bad team in three out of six games this year. So that, that's frustrating. That's frustrating as a fan. It's frustrating as an alumni. Um, good reminder to enjoy every win when, when you get them, but certainly it's hard to have a lot of positivity, uh, leaving this Stanford game, but we got to carry on. Hope we get the 4 and 3 next week. So, with that, let's turn over a new page to the UNLV uh, game coming up next week.
2: You gotta evaluate the film. You got to watch it and you got to figure out why we didn't and look at every single play. Every single play. You know, because what happens if all of a sudden it's a two point game and you come back and you win it by one, you're feeling a little bit better, obviously, because you win. But it's, you have to go back and watch every single play and figure out why or why not aren't we executing, you know? and uh, that's what we got to do.
1: Okay, everyone, turning the page from last week's horrible chapter, hopefully we're moving to a more stable, safe chapter this week. Notre Dame, we're playing UNLV. It's a home game. I think you start with the talent discrepancy here. So Notre Dame, our talent composite is 10th. We certainly haven't played, like, the 10th most talented team in the country this year. Uh, UNLV, though, on the other hand, their talent composite is 118th. So just from baseline talent, Massive, massive gap here. Again, Notre Dame. We haven't always played to the talent mismatch at times this year. Hopefully, we'll be, we'll be able to do so this week. UNLV. A little bit more on them. Their surprise story this year: four and three for a program. Last year, they were two and ten. However, it's worth noting that they have lost two games in a row to San Jose and Air Force by a combined eighty-two to fourteen. So the record's looking a little bit better than expected, but they've shown quite a bit of a drop-off the last two weeks in terms of Notre Dame's expectations. This game, as I mentioned, just a massive mismatch for UNLV across the board. Notre Notre Dame should be able to out, just out talent UNLV SP plus implies about a 23 point spread. The uh, ESPN uh, power index gives us about a 95% chance of winning. And then the Vegas lines are about 24 points. So we're really big favorites this game. Of course, we've heard that many times this year. But I do think, if we struggle to win this one, I think if if you thought the alarm bells were loud last week, they're going to get even louder. Oh, it's going to get this ugly. following week, yeah. So um, I think one other one other element that we need to talk about here is that their starting QB Doug Brumfield was act was off to a really good start, eight touchdowns, two interceptions through five games, but then was injured very early in their sixth game, and then he missed their most recent game. We haven't seen an update since then, but his performance. In the games that he was pl- able to play, he had a 91 grade on pro football focus, which is, that's essentially an elite level. You have to, one other note on pro football focus that we mentioned a lot is that it's not opponent adjusted. So it's not like he's putting up these grades against Alabama and Georgia. If he was, then he would be a surefire number one pick in the NFL draft. But nonetheless, against, against, the, even against this competition level, a 91 pro football focus grade is extremely impressive. Uh, Their backup so far, pretty big drop off. 48 his grade on pro football focus is 48 so that's a big drop off of 48 that's essentially saying that you're below a backup bench replacement level it's kind of like a fourth string qb level performance this person's essentially actively damaging the team at this point man so. you are
0: just ripping this poor backup quarterback
1: <laughs> <laughs> well we'll say pines pines had some pretty low profile Football there Focus grades too but then he's, he's had some good ones too so
0: this guy hasn't played a whole lot but that grade- Pine had a pro football focus grade of 57 against Stanford, so we we know what it's like to have a third or fourth string looking quarterback out there.
1: Yeah, so needless to say, if if this guy's playing at a f- pro football focus grade level of 48, there is no no reason that Notre Dame should
0: be allowing UNLV to s- stick around in this game. So looking to some other roster spots, and first off, it's not official yet whether or not Doug Brumfield... The original starting quarterback will be back or not. So that's a big storyline to follow throughout the week. Um, their leading receivers, Ricky White, pretty dangerous guy, but maybe more importantly, this is another really balanced offense. We've talked about that UNC look like that BYU look like that. Um, UNLV has eight players with 11 or more catches by comparison. Notre Dame has just three. Um, so they spread the ball around. And on defense, they have 8 of 11 starters with pro football focus grades of 70 or higher. So they grade out really nicely on defense. They do a good job of limiting explosiveness. They've done a good job of generating havoc on the year um, on both of those metrics. They are 38th in explosiveness um, stopped and 33rd in havoc generated. Um the downside to their defense though is they just don't keep teams off schedule largely by controlling the line of scrimmage or, or lack thereof. So they're 127th in line yards allowed, 108th in success rate allowed. So, you know, look that, that the biggest thing we need to talk about is strength of schedule here too. All of those metrics are not adjusting for strength of schedule and UNLV comes in with the 116th strength of schedule in the country. So despite some decent numbers in certain places like pro football focus grades and, and some of the numbers, you know, like havoc and explosiveness by their defense. This is a very overwhelmed program coming into Notre Dame, but they've only lost by, uh, to Cal by six points. So they've proven they can play with power five, um, competition. Notre Dame's proven that we can play down to anybody. So this game, while Notre Dame is heavy favorites, um, no one should be walking into this thinking, you know, Notre Dame's a surefire win. We've, Said that twice this year and were wrong both times against Marshall and Stanford. So Mike, with that, let's close out with score predictions. As you mentioned, the lines moved up here a bit. I'm checking it right now. Um, Notre Dame's a 24 and a half point favorite with an over under of 49 and a half. So that predicts this game will be about, um, 37 to 13 is, is what Vegas has predicted. Um, I have struggled all year predicting spreads for this football team. We are 0-3 as a multi-score favorite, um, not covering against Cal, Marshall, and Stanford. Cal, even in a winning effort, didn't cover. Um, I got to just believe that one of these times we're going to cover, but 24.5 a is a big number for a team that I don't think can put up a lot of points. So I've got this one 30-10, um, to 10 um Notre Dame you know wins comfortably but doesn't cover I sure hope I'm wrong I sure hope this is a good old neck crack game a good you know feel good game to, to bounce back and and reset the team's focus but I've got it 30 to 10 comfortable win good defensive performance um, but not quite covering the 24 and a half point spread
1: yeah it's it's been it's been really tricky making predictions this year it's just one minute when we think the team is about to turn a corner, then they completely fall on their face and have one of the worst performances I've seen in years. I do think it's worth noting that as bad as Stanford and Marshall are, UNLV, at least from an advanced metric standpoint, is quite a bit of a step down. So overall, they're 106th in SP+. Plus. Whereas I want to say Marshall and Stanford were somewhere around the 60s or 70s, somewhere in that range. So there is a bit of a difference there. Um, I do think... I just don't have enough confidence in our offense to really beat the spread here. I, I think our defense is going to play well. I think they're going to respond. I think Marshall's going to struggle to, especially if their backup QBs in, I think they're going to struggle to really do a whole lot. So by virtue of that, maybe our defense will be able to put our offense in some good situations. Our special teams has been pretty solid this year. So if that happens, maybe maybe we're able to get something going on the offensive side. I think all this is kind of – even all that being said, though, it's hard for me to imagine any sort of explosive offensive performance where we're just putting up like 40 points or something like that. So I think I'm kind of leaning more towards a score of 28 to 10, which is maybe a little bit closer than a lot of people would like, a little closer for comfort. But I think to me that says that our defense did a – a pretty, pretty solid job. Maybe we gave up Maybe we gave up some points in garbage time. And uh, our offense was able to get some points, in large part, maybe to special teams and defense, giving them some good situations.
0: And Brumfield, for the record, I just found an update from about an hour ago as, as we record this on Monday night, that he is listed as day-to-day officially. He's in the concussion protocol. Um, but it sounds like there's some optimism by their beat writers that he'll be back. So I made my prediction, assuming Brumfield will play, um, obviously, if he's not available, that's a big part of this UNLV offense that really led to some struggles here in the last couple of weeks. So that – let's move on to our third and final segment where we're going to dive into the overall performance of our defense this year.
2: My role as a head coach is, is to give my opinion, right? And, and, and there's times I might say, hey, run the ball. Hey, run the ball. There's not many times I say stop running the ball and throw the ball. But there's times I say run the ball. <laughs> We did. We tried to run the ball first half. We ran the ball pretty effectively the second half.
0: For context for this segment covering our defense, we really felt like um, the defense got caught in the crossfire of criticism, and not even just after the Stanford game, but before the Stanford game in a couple of different instances this season that we thought just didn't really line up as you start looking at some advanced metrics and, and looking at broader context of who we've played. And so we were actually planning this segment Before the Stanford game, it maybe became even more real after the Stanford game, where I think on both sides of the ball, everyone's getting criticized. And one of our concerns with that is when everything's not broken, but you start saying everything's broken and trying to change it, you can actually change something that's working pretty well. So one of my concerns is we're going to start making changes on defense when the defense is just fine and and might actually make it worse. And so we're going to try to tease some of that out. In this segment, but for background, two quotes we wanted to highlight, one by Pete Sampson at the Athletic, um, and, and, one by Marcus Freeman in his Stanford post game. So the Pete Sampson quote was from an article actually earlier this week in his weekly, uh, reader mailbag where he takes Q and A from readers and he gets to pick the questions. And the first one he picked was about calling out, why is our defense so average to bad? And, and a quote out of it was, quote, Notre Dame's defense has been hard to understand. Not because it's been great, not because it's been awful, but because it's been wildly unpredictable within games. Notre Dame's defensive statistics are mediocre across the board, except for turnovers forced where they're poor. It's a pretty negative assessment. And by the way, we, we really like Pete Sampson. We're, we're huge fans of, of Pete and the Athletic. But as we're going to get into, think this one was a little misplaced. The other one is from Freeman after the Stanford game where he said, quote, when there's days when our offense isn't executing well, the defense has to play better. They have to play perfect. Today we needed it. Today was a day we needed the defense to play perfect and they didn't. Um, that's just not a realistic ask to go out and ask any 20 year old kid to be perfect week to week or kind of sit and say, yep, yeah, the offense had a bad game. And so it's also the defense's fault. Like I just don't like that, um, that mentality. And so we're going to get into some stats. But the first one that just isn't captured in stats, and so I wanted to make a qualitative point, is just situational defense matters. This is a defense that has had to cover up for a sputtering offense. It's a defense that is losing the field position battle. It's a defense that constantly has to go out after a three and out. It's a defense that constantly has to go out in high leverage situations and defend a 20 to 25 lead against BYU, and then a 28 to 20 lead against BYU, and then... Like they're constantly having to go out without the defense, uh, without the offense covering for them. And despite all that, they're ranking pretty darn solid on efficiency metrics and they're allowing 22 points per game, which allowing 22 points per game in college football, regardless of who you're playing is definitely above average. When you factor in who we've played, which we're about to get into is really above average. And it's clear we're a bend, not break defense. It's clear we're not going to with our secondary go and get a bunch of interceptions. Until the Stanford game, we've actually been pretty great at generating havoc from a sack perspective, just maybe not like a secondary passes deflective. deflected. So it's a bend, not break defense. We know what the scheme is. We know what the strategy is. And they're doing a really solid job of it, especially in the context of how often they are put in really unfavorable positions by our offense. That situational defense, that situational context really matters. Both that, Mike, I'll turn it over to you and you can maybe start diving into some of the advanced metrics we, we've been looking at for context.
1: Yeah, Brett, I think you have a good point on just the defense frequently being put in tough situations. A lot of the burden is being put on them. And that's, that's an important factor in the context when you're evaluating, in the full context of when you're evaluating the defense. Now, I think another point, if you're going, to, and you hinted at this already, I think another important part of that, of that context that I think someone like, Like Pete Sampson was missing and again, love Pete Sampson, but I I don't think he was capturing every single uh, part of the picture here was just the, the strength of the opponent. So if you're just looking at some headline numbers like yards per game, points per game or pro football focus grades, those don't we've talked about this before. Those don't actually adjust for the quality of the opponent. So if you look at some of the, some of the teams and players we've played, so CJ Stroud, Ohio State, still a Heisman frontrunner, one of the best players in the country, Ohio State, one of the best offenses in the country. This guy's like, CJ Stroud, likely a top five pick. Jaron Hall, Tanner McGee, Drake May, all of these quarterbacks have received first or second round draft projections depending on what NFL draft source you look at. So I think when someone like Pete Sampson is saying that our defensive stats are mediocre, it's, it's missing a lot of context. It almost feels like he's grasping for some stats that are maybe have some, some holes in them to, just to try to hammer home a point. Cause when I, when he made that point, I thought, and he was, you know, it's, it's clear some of these, what, what are, what some of these metrics are that he's referencing. I think it's like, if you, if you, if you take a step back and look at what's potentially influencing some of these numbers, it's very easy to poke holes in the argument that it's making. So um, again, a little Pete's usually on it with these types of analyses. This one, I think he was a little off on, I think one other Point that we have to look at here. So when we talk about efficiency metrics, that does account for strength of opponent. That that accounts for who you're playing. And so right now we're 31st in in SP Plus on the defensive side. So that's not great. We had some expectations maybe that we'd be around the top 20, and if a few things went our way, maybe we could get in the top 10, which would be around an elite level. And even even a a, uh, even with some of these better performances that we were seeing a couple weeks ago. Like the last two weeks before the Stanford game, I think we were getting a little bit more optimistic that we'd be able to step it up. So we haven't, we certainly haven't hit our expectations for the top 20 or top 10 at the beginning of the year, but 31st is still pretty solid. And that's, that's, you're certainly not losing games because of the defense if you're at that level. Another efficiency metric that I think paints the Notre Dame defense in a positive light is the DFEI. Uh so college football outsiders they come up with this metric. It's another competitor competitor to SP plus, really tries to give you an idea of how your defense is actually doing when you're just for opponents, tempo, all these things. So fourteenth, that's really solid. That if if we're 31st and SP plus which which says that we're we're doing fine above average, 14th is actually closer to that elite level that we were suggesting. Now, I don't think we've actually been performing at an elite level, but fourteenth would suggest that we're actually not that far off. Um, and it would suggest that maybe we do have some potential to actually get to that next level. So I think overall the takeaway for me looking at this data right here is by no means is our, is our defense perfect, but, um, I think from, from, for what we're trying to do, I think they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're not losing us the game. They've shown flashes of potentially being an elite defense. They've also had flashes where we've looked pretty soft and given up a lot of big plays. Um, and I don't think it's fair to, criticize them to the extent that Pete Sampson did. He said he, he was kind of trying to say that they were average, but then I think some of his language essentially came across as quite negative actually. It's like he was kind of leaning towards saying that they were average, but then if you took full scope of what he said, it was suggesting that our defense has been vastly disappointing and has been underperforming and um has been pretty bad at times.
0: Yeah and by by no means are we trying to say that you know this is the twenty twelve Notre Dame defense. Um, it's it's not, and so you know maybe two stats to take a balanced approach here. This is the best example of a bend don't break defense. Bend don't break means you give up a lot of yards, you give up a lot of plays, but you hang in there, and at the end of the day, you don't give up that many points. So like across the board, you know you're kind of leaky, but you figure out how to make a stop when you need to. That's exactly what this team is. Um, the definition of a bend not break defense is being good at tackling but not good at generating big plays to kind of go take the ball away or really just knock out an offense. Well, we're eighth in missed tackling rate in the country. So we have missed um, on 10% of our tackle opportunities. That's eighth best in the country. And the number one team is actually really close to us. There's a tight grouping between number one and number 10. Michigan has the best tackling rate at 9%. So we're four missed tackles away from being the best tackling team in the country. Average is about 15%. So pretty big gap between us and, and the middle of the country. And against Stanford, we actually had a missed tackle rate of nine and a half percent. So it's actually one of our better tackling performances of the season, despite, you know, maybe some of the Cam Hart open field missed tackles people want to remember. Overall, that's a really solid tackling performance. But then on the flip side, we're 125th in havoc generated. So we've been kind of top quartile to top half, um, in sacks. We're not getting a lot of tackles for loss in the run game, and we're getting no deflected passes or interceptions or other havoc from from our secondary. But that's a bend, not break, and they're doing a good job of it. So is it dominant? No. Is it top 10? No. Is it Georgia's defense? No. But this is a really, really good defense. And so the other way that I wanted to close out looking at this is how have opponents done against us versus everyone else they've played? So I'll I'll tick through these pretty quickly, but Ohio State scored 21 points against us. They've scored at least 45 points in every single other game they've played. Um, They averaged five, or sorry, they had 5.7 yards per play against us in every other game. They've gotten at least seven yards per play. So Ohio State, best offense in the country by far. Their worst offensive performance was against Notre Dame. Marshall, I can't explain this one very well. We gave up 26 points. That was pretty much right on average for Marshall. So, you know, it's not like they did terribly worse against us, but not a great look if we're kind of having an average performance against Marshall. Cal, um, 4.4 yards per play in that Cal game. That was the second worst game of the season for them. That's another example where we wound up allowing 17 points, which was a median output for Cal. But you got to remember our offense gave up a pick six in that game at the end. So really our defense only gave up 10 points. Like context matters there, but on a play-by-play basis, that was the second worst game of the year for Cal's offense. UNC, similar story, 6.1 yards per play. That was their worst game of the year. Um, BYU, um, 6.2 yards per play, pretty close to an average game for them. The 20 points that we allowed to BYU, that was their worst performance of the year. Um, and then Stanford, Even in this game, 16 points, despite Stanford's really bad record. Um, Stanford's 16 points was the worst game of the year for them, despite running 80-plus plays. Like Despite our defense just being on the field the entire game, because our offense couldn't stay on the field, Um, 16 points allowed and 4.8 yards per play was the second worst game of the year. So pretty much other than Marshall, um, every single other team we've played has had either their worst or second worst offensive game of the year. To me, that just, especially when you're going up against CJ Stroud and Drake May and Tanner McKee and Jaron Hall, it paints a different story than what the narrative is right now in Notre Dame's defense and how Al Golden's doing. Um, I'm really happy with the defensive side of the ball. I hope we don't change a thing. If we keep giving up, you know, low 20s against good offenses and teens against, you know, mid teens against bad offenses, that just has to win football games. The only place to look is why is you know Tom Reese and the offense not able to put up 30 points a game. If we're putting up 15, 20 points a game on defense, um, that's got to win football games. And so our, I think, biggest takeaway from this is just to hope that the narrative on this changes a little bit. Um, just because the house is on fire doesn't mean we need to throw everyone out. And I think overall, the defense is doing a really good job this year.
1: Yeah, we can, leave, we can leave a few things in the fu- in the
0: house to burn. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was probably a really bad analogy. I'll, no, I'll do better next week, folks. I'm sorry. I'm still reeling from this game.
1: Yeah, yeah, we all are. So, yeah, I agree with all that, Brett. I think our defense has been fine. I don't think they should be getting this much flack. I mean, we, we mentioned a bunch of contexts and metrics here that show that they're actually doing pretty well. Of course, the havoc, that grabs a lot of attention. That could be better. There have certainly been some lapses. Where we've had some missed tackles, we've had some, some blown third and longs, and th- those get a lot of attention. But when you take a step back and actually dive into everything, it shows you that we have a defense that's performing at a high level and is being put in a lot of tough spots against a lot of good offenses. So I think in, in context of all that, I don't think that we necessarily need to, need to start picking our, putting our hands in and, 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 and changing everything. I think, yeah, I think we, like you said, Brett, I think we leave the defense in the house to, 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 to burn
0: as it's all coming down. <laughs> <laughs> all right. With that, I'm out of analogies for the week. Gyrish beat rebels. Gyrish beat rebels.
2: They're the rebels, right?